Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. Stay tuned for Whiskey Chronicles and learn all about the history of the whiskey glass. Last week, Rolling Stone put out an article entitled The Best Whiskey Glasses for Your Next Party or Virtual Happy Hour. In it, they featured four different types of glasses. The Glencairn Whiskey Glass, the Marquise by Waterford Double Old Fashioned Glass, the Venero Crystal Whiskey Glasses, and the Five O'Clock Rocks Whiskey Glasses. From this list of four, the Glencairn glass ranked best for direct sensory experience. However, the other glasses are said to be better for cocktails and drams with lots of ice in them. The article states, when it comes to drinking whiskey, your chosen glassware has a direct effect on your sensory experience. Furthermore, it stated, unfortunately, not all glassware is designed for an optical nosing experience. Today's guest, Martin Duffy, will go into this more deeply. But for now, we're going to take a deeper dive into the Chronicles and learn more about the history of the whiskey glass. For centuries of whiskey's history, people enjoyed it from a drinking bowl with handles on both sides called a quake, spelled Q-U-A-I-C-H, but sounding quake. It comes from the Gaelic word for cup. The first quakes were made from wood and for functional use only. But as time went on, they became symbols and took on new meanings. They became symbols of status and wealth. The upper-class quakes were made of rare or culturally significant types of wood, precious metals, or both. Eventually, people grew loyal to the quake as their means of drinking whiskey, just as many of today's whiskey drinkers are loyal to the Glencairn glass. To learn more about the fascinating history of the whiskey glass, we've invited the current North American brand representative for Glencairn Crystal to the show. Welcome, Martin. Yes, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, kids. <laughs> right. So we wanted to check with you to see what exactly the history of Glencairn is, because I know it's on its 20th anniversary this year. So how did the glass come to be, and how did it get to where it is? Well, you know, it's funny, since you, you're talking about the history of whiskey glasses and whiskey vessels, um, it came about in that... There is a, a, just a young kid with a dream by the name of Raymond Davidson, who back in about 1981, I believe it was, he had been a crystal salesman and he started his own company making decanters and cut crystal tumblers, sold mostly through uh, to a lot of the the Scotch, uh, yeah, the Scotch whiskey companies throughout Scotland. And about 15, 16 years later, he was looking around, he was noticing, you know, whiskey was making a return to prominence uh, after, uh, you know, a kind of a slow, long uh, slide, losing a place on top to vodka, that uh, he, he noticed that there was no whiskey glass. Yeah, people would be drinking out of a rocks glass. Usually, especially here in the States, you got those old, thick, dirty tumblers, which were great mm -hmm. because they, they were a little harder to break, but... Right. Um, they weren't actually conducive to really enjoying a whiskey. Then you had the brandy snifter. You know, it's been around forever. It really wasn't conducive to whiskey. It was a brandy snifter. Yeah, so and it it's even, even for brandy, the, the, the physics of it are Correct. right. 
if you go to cognac, you don't see anyone using that glass. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Interesting. They'll have the smaller tulip glass. So, anyways, he came up with a, a general design for the Glencairn glass, but he goes, "Ah, oh, who the heck is gonna be using a glass like this? Oh, people don't use that." Eh. So he uh, he put it up on the shelf, and about four or five years later, his son Paul came to work at the company. He sees the glass and says, "Dad, what's this?" He goes, "Oh, it's an idea I had. I don't know." And so, next thing you know, they turn around. Paul invites a number of master blenders to put their two cents in and, uh, you know, maybe help with the design, maybe create uh, the right width for the bowl, uh, the length of the neck, the size of the mouth. Should it have a stem? Should it just have the thick base? And voila, the, uh, the Glencairn glass was born and it really got its coming out party at Whiskey Fest. We owe a lot mm-hmm. to the folks at Whiskey Fest, especially John and uh, Amy Hansel. They they made the association to whiskey pretty permanent. And to, to this day, most whiskey events are going to use a, a Glencairn glass. And, yeah, or the, the new, the new newer mini Glencairn. The wee. It's the wee. The wee Glencairn. Hi. Which I love because if you have little tiny pockets, you can just slide it in there. And off you go. Yeah. I must say, as, as many people know, we just finished a crowdfunding for a TV pilot that we're doing. And while we're waiting for uh, the pandemic to subside and get back to production, we're working on this podcast. But one of the, the treats that we got for people to incentivize them to donate was a wee Glen Karen glass. And I've been using mine nightly until I ran out of whiskey last week. So <laughs> I, was, I was like, well, this is good because I won't drink too much because it's not big enough to like. But then I just kept refilling it. So I don't know how well that worked. And, and those Carrie, were Carrie, 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 I'm shedding barley tears for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I want to see that. Are you crying barley, Phil? That's weird. <laughs> Yes, pearled, pearled. As long as they're not salty, I'll have some. (laughs) (laughs) The the Weagling Karen actually came about because the tasting rooms in Scotland were giving out samples. And, you know, over in the UK, a a standard pour is only three quarters of an ounce. Uh, So about half of what you get here. So their samples were even smaller. And they were using the Glencairn glass in their tasting rooms. So they thought, hey, can you make the glass smaller? to make the little sample seem bigger. And voila, we came up with the Wee Glencairn, and it caught on very well over in Scotland and all the Scottish distilleries. Next thing you know, over here in the U.S., people love them. Uh, Stephen Beam at Limestone Branch, he must go through three pallets a year. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's 3,000. Is he losing some to breakage, walkage, or does he sell them as souvenirs? He gives, yeah, he sells them. Uh, Basically, he hands one to everybody taking a tour. He offers them the chance of buying that particular glass that they're holding for $5 or buying a brand new clean one in the visitor center for seven. And so people Mm -hmm. pay $5. (laughs) It's a bargain. I have, a, I have another question about whiskey glasses in particular, but there are now several brands in the market that emphasize their engineering, the engineering that went into their design. <laughs> now, I've, I have, you know, tried many of them, but the Glencairn still is king of the hill by a lot. Tell me, was engineering an element of the Glencairn's development 
or was it more analog and it just so happens that the engineering was perfect? Well, you know, it's funny. I've never really sat down with Ray and asked him, you know, how he came up with the initial concept. But obviously, a lot of it makes sense. If you look at it, the Glencairn glass is kind of based on a, uh, a cognac or armagnac glass with some subtle differences. You don't have a straight shoot going straight up from the bulb uh, like you do in those glasses. Obviously, you don't have a stem. Everything is a little more gradual. And obviously, the mouth of the glass is wider. A lot of that all stemmed out of the observations of the master blenders. I mean, they came in, they refined it. There was at least five master blenders from five different blending houses. Wow. Mm-hmm. And all competing. So, it, um, so its style and its form is quite literally dictated by expert opinion. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's... And that's why it hasn't changed. We haven't changed anything about it. Once in a while, you'll see us come out with a, a different colored one. I don't know if you guys were aware of the uh, the minor mishap we had on Black Friday when we announced that we had 1,000 black Blancairn glasses available. I did hear about that, but I didn't actually see one. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people who didn't see one. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, the guy who did our IT, you know, he guaranteed us our, our website would hold up, but uh, it just crashed. It just, we were, we've never had that kind of uh, crowd slam into our, our server all at once like wow. that. So, uh, mm-hmm. no, they, they were all sold, but uh, I guess some people were trying to get online for three hours in the middle of the night. And... So was it a mistake to make it or, or they made it on purpose, but they're just not making more? Well, what we do is we we will create test glasses. So there, we actually have a few green ones, which I oh, kind of nice. like. Yeah, I kind of like them. We have the blue, which is a, a cobalt blue uh, that is a standard. That is a, uh, and we may bring the black glass back as a uh, a standard mm-hmm. as well. Are oh, these cool. transparent still, or are they solid? Now they're pretty solid. The black is pretty solid. You can't really. You'd have a. Maybe if you had a very, very, very bright light behind it. Mm-hmm. But the whole mm-hmm. idea behind the black one is for blind tasting. Uh, so yeah. that the color will never, won't affect your, it'll simply okay. by sense of smell. Is the green also solid or is it any transparency? No, uh, it's more transparent. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's also great marketing because at some point these will come, these will become collector's items. I'm thinking of uh, LPs from the LP releases from the seventies. <laughs> now and again, a band or a record company would, would release one in, you know, orange vinyl or blue vinyl right. or, or multicolored vinyl. And right. now, you know, people are, you know, lurking on eBay looking for these things. Yeah. Well, I'd love to, I think that would be a great idea. I'd love to see that, but the guys in Scotland, you know, you got to remember, they're, they're coming from a crystal background. That's what they have always made. In fact, a big chunk of their bread and butter is still making crystal decanters, very elaborate crystal mm. decanters for the whiskey companies. So if you see a, any of uh, Glenn Farkless's older expressions, uh, they're in these beautiful crystal decanters that Glenn Karen made. Nice. We made a, an actual a whiskey decanter for Jim Rutledge's retirement party. And that cool. alone cost between three and four thousand dollars. Oh, jeez! Yeah, it was gorgeous, though. I mean, it was it was all hand etched, and they put uh, gold inlay, the four roses logo mm-hmm. on the back. Oh, beautiful, his name. Wow. Um, Smarty. Yeah. Um, 
like many whiskey brand ambassadors, you were at one time a professional actor. I was. I was. Um, can you tell us about your journey from there to here? <laughs> uh, how, you, how you went from acting to being a... What's now you know an internationally known spirits educator? Well, you know, I you know a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys I started off with, like uh, Spike McClure out of New York or Simon Brooking. We, we just interviewed Simon Brooking. Yep. Yeah, so okay. Simon and I, uh, we came up together as masters of Scotch for Johnny Walker, mm-hmm. and he jumped. You helped define the category. We did. There really were no American brand ambassadors for any spirits that I know of during that time. This was from the mid-90s to the early aughts. Um, mm-hmm. You had guys coming over from Scotland. You had Evan Katnack, who was our mentor, and uh, oh, uh, Anthony Burnett was with uh, Glenn Morangi. But other than that, I mean, when I was a bartender in the 90s, yeah, I, got, I got almost no training. I think Anthony Burnett was my first training on whiskey, and that wasn't probably until the late 90s. And even then, it was... Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 maybe 15 20 minute uh little presentation yeah very common very common at the time yeah no it's still it's still common i took my bartending certification class what five or six years ago and i knew more about whiskey than the guys teaching it and i had to correct both my teachers on several things but to go back a little so yeah i started doing improv at second city in the in the 80s uh and uh i actually me and i'd like to throw this out you know a little name dropping when i was at second city steve carell and i uh performed together in a show wow three months three four months also who was in our group which is kind of funny because i wondered what happened to him for a while uh i'm not very tech savvy myself but there was a little fellow by the name of dick costello we used to call him sniffles he went on to uh, be the CEO of uh, Twitter. Oh, wow. Worth most wow. millions of dollars. We used to just tease him as being a big nerd. And that mm-hmm. <laughs> he could buy and sell me in the marketplace. Um, <laughs> um, so what you're saying is that he didn't have one character. He didn't specialize in one character. He specialized in 140. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Look at that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, so like any good actor at the time, um, I discovered bartending. And so I started bartending to support my acting. And eventually I got... Never heard of that. Never heard of that before. Yeah, I know. I think I'm the only one who did it backwards. I've been in the entertainment industry for about 20 years. And about six years ago, I was like, I'm getting tired of this. I want to go do bartending. And everyone's like, you're already in in the industry. I'm like, yeah, I'm getting tired of it. Well, I'm going to do something fun. I used to think a bar was like a stage. I used to love it. Absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of actors who think, you know, I'm still in theater. I'm just behind the stick. Right. And then the bartending led to, I, I was thirsty for knowledge, so to speak, as far as the spirits I was serving. I had no idea. You know, it was back in the day when you considered Southern Comfort was a bourbon. That's what people thought. Uh, so I saw an ad in the paper that a marketing company was looking for a group of people to run around in terry cloth kilts, run into bars, and buy people <laughs> scotches. And that was the Johnny Walker kilted clan. 
There'd be about three oh, of us with just these really horrible, cheap kilts on, running in, buying people drinks. And that led to presentations. You know, then we started doing Johnny Walker mentor events. Did that on and off for seven years with, uh, while working for other whiskey brands as well. And then 2003, they wanted uh, seven people to go full time. So they hired us. One in all the major cities. I, you guys probably know Steve Beal out there in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Steve Indeed. was one of the originals. Spike in New York, myself in Chicago, Brad Jarvis in Boston, James McCartney, the only true Scotsman. Uh, mm-hmm. called him the Grey Seal because he would swim naked in oh. the, the waters off of Jura one day and rise out of uh, the waters like Poseidon. Uh, <laughs> a very old, wrinkly Poseidon, but a Poseidon nonetheless. I hear he packs quite the trident. <laughs> hey, I don't know if you call that a trident. There was one that was old. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, Rick Edwards. Rick Edwards was one of ours. Rick is now with Strand, yeah, but he was with uh, Glenn... Uh, live it for a good number of years um anyways they need us full time they brought us to scotland we did the malt advocate course at royal lock distillery and that was in december right before christmas and we were supposed to start january 2nd and the one thing they didn't tell us is what do we do <laughs> bring us on whiskey now what what are we supposed to do they said just make the job your own and that's what we all did in our own region of the countries. You know, I had 12 states at the time. That was my everything. Wow. The Dakotas through West Virginia, basically my territory. You kind of had a Midwestern arc. I did. I did. I had a thermos presented to me by the part-time mayor of Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, my friend's sister lives there. <laughs> I might have I might have seen her because uh, it wasn't... Uh, there were a lot of people in Fargo, uh, but it was a it was a fun time. It was a great time. I did that. Uh, I spent two years over in Ireland as the reserve brand ambassador, and they never had ambassadors over there either uh, at that time. So I kind of held the little distinction of being the first brand ambassador in in Ireland, uh, mm-hmm. at least for Diageo, and then uh, went on to become a national brand ambassador for Benedictine for. Two glorious years. Um, I'm looking at a bottle of it right now. Good old Benedictine. I always think that sounds like something you're supposed to get at the doctor. Benedictine? (laughs) Yeah, just the way it sounds. Like something you're supposed to put on a cut. (laughs) Come here. What what was that? What was that stuff they used to spray on a cut? Ben. Ben. Uh, Something sounding similar, I think. Yeah, there used to be a. Benedictine? Benedictine, maybe? Plug that in somehow. (laughs) Uh, did that, and then for eight years, I was co-producer of the Chicago Independent Spirit Expo, along with uh, the the always glamorous and beautiful uh, Dave Schmier, uh, creator of Redemption. Yeah, uh, and then five years ago, uh, the Davidson family uh, reached out to me and asked, "Hey, would you like to work for us in North America? Because it's a small company, and so they really they would send one of the brothers out, you know." traveling the globe that send them to Asia or uh, here. And it's a lot of territory for a little company. Yeah. So, and even with me here, I mean, it's still a 
big continent for little old me, but I I get around. Curious, <laughs> you 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 North America. I, 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 what are sales like south of the U.S. border? I've mm-hmm. had some tequila mezcal uh, folks reach out to us. Mm-hmm. A couple stores in Central America have asked mm-hmm. for the glassware, and then uh, South America. I don't know if it's a language barrier because. Uh, I know poquito Spanish, Espanol, mm-hmm. but I do know they do love their their whiskey, especially Scotch whiskey, in a, a good number of, of countries down there. But I, as far as Glencairn's reach, we don't we don't do a lot of advertising. But you know that would be one area that I think we really need to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Curious because whiskey sales were growing everywhere. Yeah. And they're even, you know, some of these countries, Mexico, for instance, they're they're developing their own whiskey making traditions. Yep. And I'm just curious about, uh, you know. Well, it's very big. I know that they're uh, a good reach over in Asia, especially mm-hmm. South uh, Southeast Asia, uh, India, and Australia. Aha. Uh-huh. Australia also a center, also a center of whiskey production. Yeah. Well, and that's just it too. You know, I think maybe as the companies or the distilleries spring up making mm-hmm. the whiskey. I mean, right now in South America, I don't know too many. In fact, I don't know if I could name one of a, a whiskey distillery in, in South America. Neither uh, could I. No. So that could be the thing that as these distilleries spring up, they bring in the glassware and then they educate folks on how to drink whiskey. You know, yeah, it could be because I mean, with, again, in the 1990s, I had been bartending for 10 years by the end of that decade. And I only knew what I was being taught through these marketing companies because there really was no other way. Uh, right. I, I didn't. Uh, well, of course, the Glencairn glass didn't exist. But, uh, you know, as far as any other accoutrements, anything to go with whiskey, I had no idea. I was drinking well, Booker Manhattans, ten ounce Booker Manhattans, in like nine. Ten ounce. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was because uh, I a didn't know. Gulp. I knew it was, that's a big gulp. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> I knew it was strong, but I no one explained proof or strength of right. whiskey to me. So I knew it was strong. I didn't know, realize how strong it was. So I just one one and done with that bad boy. Yeah, well, I'd have three of them actually. <laughs> Now I look back um, and I go, oh my God, how am I alive? Right? Yeah. Do you know how the Glencairn glass got its name? Well, I had heard one story that Glencairn, Glen and Karen were um, two different street signs near where Raymond lived. Oh. Ah. But if you break that down, Glen is a river valley, as we all know mm-hmm. from the various mm-hmm. scotches. And a Karen is, uh, if you go to Scotland or even Ireland, you'll see little mounds of stones that have been erected. Uh, that is in memory of a departed loved one, much like you'd see a white cross mm-hmm. along the okay. expressway. So that is what that is, a Kieran. Uh So it's standing stones. That's what it's Interesting. Called. Yeah. That is very pretty. Valley of the Standing Stones. A, a fitting name for a, a beautiful crystal. Okay. So 2011, you started working as a producer with the Chicago Independent Spirits Expo. The landscape was much different. In very different. 
Independent Spirits 2011 was still, you know, most states didn't know how to license distilleries because so few states were home to distilleries. Now they are in the, I don't know what the latest count is, but it's north of 3,000 American, you know, craft distillers. And now it's 2020. Can you tell us briefly about the the evolution you experienced as, as a producer of that expo? Well, you know, it's interesting. So actually, you've got to give a lot of credit to Mr. Schmier, Mr. Dave mm-hmm. Schmier. Uh, Dave had his own small brand. Uh, he had a vodka brand called Orange V that I often tease him. That was the first uh, St. Joseph baby aspirin flavored uh, vodka I've ever <laughs> tasted. Um, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, he, but he noticed, you know, where was he going to? What spirit shows were out there for vodka or gins Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or any uh, small brands? You had Whiskey Fest and Whiskey Live. You had a lot of whiskey shows starting to pop up. Uh, But there was none for the small guys. And there were, it's actually surprises me now thinking that there were guys like St. George Mm -hmm. was around then. And um, McCarthy's um, Clear Creek out of Portland. I mean, these guys were around. Uh, even uh, Fritz Maytag was, you know, had a, a small distillery in his brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, we, you know, if you weren't making whiskey, where did you showcase your wares? Uh, so Dave started with his brand and maybe one or two others in the corner of a nightclub in New York. And he called nice. it the Indie Spirit Expo. So four years later, 2011, he asked me to come out to New York and work the table his table form for redemption because it had grown i think he had like 50 to 60 brands by 2011 huge i loved it so much i thought it was amazing it blew my mind you know even at that point i thought oh my god you you're making vodka from honey i thought oh my god that's crazy i never heard of that you know not even thinking about it Mm -hmm. so i convinced him to bring it to chicago that fall and so we asked Mike Miller over at uh, of Delilah's fame. He is a part owner of another place called Bottom Lounge and had a nice big space. We said, let's, can we take over the, the whole bar? And we had about 60 to 70 brands, including brands that, that just launched. Paul Helko's Few Spirits had just launched. Love, now, love Paul's work. Yeah, now that brand is an international brand. It is but, uh, yeah. in uh, the Samson and Surrey portfolio. Correct. And at mm-hmm. that at that point, though, it had been uh, been on the market for less than a month by the mm-hmm. time our expo happened in September 2011. Oh wow! And a number of other, you know, uh, um, small time brands, and it just grew from there. Every year, we could see it just by the number of attendees and the number of exhibitors that we had. To finally about, I want to say, 2017, mm-hmm. maybe 2017, we had about 150 exhibitors uh, wow. moved to the Hilton Hotel downtown. And that was, we maxed out the room, a 10,000 square foot room. We just, we had to move out into the foyer. Oh, wow. And we just didn't have enough room anymore. And as you said, now I had heard it's over 2,000. Uh, but it, who knows? It could be up around. It might be about three thousand brands, because mm-hmm. not every brand has a distillery. 
Mm-hmm. No, right. indeed. Uh, you know, the less and less a secret now, but, you know, there are all these mezcals and tequilas coming out of uh, Mexico, but there are a handful of makers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of little mezcal, um, Lawrenceburg, Indiana's, basically. Yes. MGP's mm-hmm. down there. Exactly. Exactly. The same thing in Ireland. Now you look at Ireland and... Oh, sure. Look at Middleton. All that uh, yeah. whiskey and a... a, a the Irish whiskey aisle of your local store, and you go, really? There's this many distilled? No, not really. Yeah, it's getting pretty big now, finally. Well, they have they have about twenty distilleries uh, that are up and running, but as far as having actual whiskey that qualifies or actual juice that qualifies as Irish whiskey, which has to be uh, right. for a minimum of three years, you still only have about I want to say five or six mm. tops. At this point, yeah, um, and the rest of it, so much of it is being, uh, is just being uh, uh, sourced. A lot right. of it's being sourced. I just, it still breaks my heart how uh, Irish whiskey was the number one whiskey, yeah, in the world, and then you know we come along with prohibition and just killed it. Yeah, in the eighteen hundreds, it outsold Scotch in Scotland. Yep, and uh, had been. Praised by the likes of Peter the Great and Queen uh, Elizabeth the First. I mean, it's nuts. Uh, And the fact that, but it also came, you know, I think it's, it's a great, um, what do they call those, those kind of learning tales, those tales that you learn from. Teachable moments. Yeah. (laughs) You know, one of those fables that, you know, teaches you, Hey, uh, don't don't rest on your laurels, which the Irish whiskey industry did. That mm-hmm. a lot of them, you know, when prohibition came around, um, and obviously they lost the entire British market once they had a falling out with the, the English. Um, and at that time, the British still ruled about twenty five percent of the globe, mm-hmm. which is insane. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, it was it was very definitely it was a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, the perfect. Um, it wasn't just U.S. prohibition, right? But right. they could have. I mean, had they just put their their noggins to it, some of them could have tapped into other markets: South America, mm-hmm. Africa, India. Oh, and not India. That was you. Uh, that was British still too, but other parts of Europe. Uh, but they just didn't have it in them. So some of them, including George Rowe, just shut down and that was yeah. the largest distillery i believe in the world at the time it was the, the original george road distillery so sad yeah it is it is but well, it's a cautionary tale that's it that's what i'm saying a cautionary tale there yes. you yeah. go yes. can you read this <laughs> to make me sound smarter <laughs> <laughs> i i can he's gonna make um. Carrie's going to make all of us sound smart. <laughs> yeah. Is there? <laughs> we should be using that because it took me a long time. All right. So um, how has COVID-19 affected your life, your career and business? And where did you see yourself going before this pandemic? And where do you see yourself going now with the pandemic situation being part of your going forward life? Well, I saw myself going down to New Orleans before uh, this all started. Um, for Tales of the Cocktail. Presumably. No, I was going down for no. the New Orleans Bourbon Festival. And that was... Ah, yes. Nice. Yes, in, in, in late winter. It was March. I think it was going to mm-hmm. be March 12th. And on March 11th, 
I think it was flying down on the 12th, I think. Um, and on the 11th, it was canceled. Mm-hmm. And so um, how it's affected me is that a big, a big chunk of my job is to travel uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada, go wherever the whiskey shows are. And I had, at that time, there was loads of whiskey shows going on. I was going to go down to New Orleans yeah. for the New Orleans Bourbon Festival, followed by Whiskey on Ice in Minnesota. Then we were going to have Whiskey Week here in Chicago, which would lead up to Whiskey Fest. There was a, nub, a whole slew, a whole week full of various whiskey events taking place right here in Chicago during that, uh, that time. And I was going to leave the next day after Whiskey Fest for uh, the American Craft Spirits Association conference in Portland. And then I wasn't sure whether I was going to go to them or not, but there was Whiskey Fest slash the Big Smoke in Fort Lauderdale, uh, the American Whiskey Convention in Philadelphia, uh, American Distillers Institute Convention in New Orleans again. And then a big the, show in Vegas. The yeah, the uh, the nth in Vegas. Uh, oh yeah, I was supposed to go to that one. Finally, going to go this year. All of those, I had to cancel all my flights and hotels. Uh, I had to cancel uh, a a family reunion in Ireland in July. Oh, that sucks. Uh, and so, how did it affect me? It uh, the thing is, when I'm not traveling, I work from home. So I'm just home a lot more than I had planned. What my concern is um, going forward is one for my, my own company, for Glencairn. I, this does affect them because uh, a big part of our industry, a big part of our business are all the small distilleries. But the other thing, too, with all the traveling I've done over the years and, and doing the Indie Spirit Expo is getting to know all these small distilleries. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really just worry for them. I just hope they squirreled some money away for a rainy day. I've talked to a number of them in the last week. They keep it afloat with hand sanitizer and, right. and um, maybe some storefront sales. But you know, there are some that uh, for which that just isn't possible. And I mean, my heart really breaks for them. It really, really does. And I, I wish there was, you know, just something. Some way, some something we could do for them, other than getting their names out there, which I try as much yeah. as possible uh, on social media. Um, but going forward, you know, I, I don't know. I'm hoping all this ends soon. I really do. I yeah. think we have to. I think we have to open up and let the chips fall where they may. We're a human race. God damn it! We've <laughs> seen worse than this. Come on, we're the human race. Let's get running. Yeah, yeah. exactly. My last question is about cocktails. I like to talk to our guests about cocktails, not what their favorite cocktail is, because I think that's frankly a ridiculous question. But briefly, talk about your favorite cocktails. Do you have a favorite type, dirt shaken or built, et cetera? Yeah, it's funny. Again, going back to the 90s, because every all my customers always ask for them shaken. I always thought, oh, that must be the way, huh? It must be good to have that field device on top. Just, just just a couple of years ago, uh, I was visiting a storied 
Los Angeles bar, not one of the craft bars, but, uh, and I ordered, I was like, okay, I'm going to play it safe here. Cause clearly this is, this place is behind the curve. So I ordered a, a, and all they had on the, on the, you know, the only quality whiskey of any sort on the, on the back bar was Jack Daniels. So I said, I'll have a Jack Daniels old fashioned. Well, my stirred cocktail got shaken mm. and then uh, converted to a highball with a, <laughs> With a float of gunned soda. Yeah. Um, oh, jeez. Yes. The, uh, I don't know. I guess it's been over a decade now of the of the rise uh, and possibly the fall of the mixologist, you know, which I wasn't crazy about because I thought a lot of them were putting more effort into making a uh, a great co- you know great creation as opposed to being yeah. a really good bartender. I missed having personalities behind the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. A lot of times, as soon as they made the drink, they'd stand there at attention with their hands behind their back. And I go, well, what's the matter? You know, don't you have a joke? <laughs> We're having a bartender who had a joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and what I think, too, I've noticed um, some of these, you know, newer bars that are coming out of chains that are owned by, you know, properties and they try to make more and more. I feel like they're not doing a good job on training anybody, let alone the bartenders. I, I went into this whiskey bar of all places. It was. I was having a phase where I wanted Manhattans all the time, mm. and I went in and I asked for a, a bullet rye perfect Manhattan, and he's like, "Oh, you got to have it perfect." And this is like the waiter guy, and I was like, "Yes, I want it perfect." I was like, "Look, look, little boy." <laughs> he was probably he's probably twenty. He's probably it's not even old enough to be you know bartending. So he he was like, "Oh, making a joke," and I said, "Yeah, actually, if you don't tell him that, it's not going to be right because that is actually the type of drink that I want." And he's like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And so then I went about explaining to him the, the variations of the Manhattan and perfect and the regular and the, the dry and all of that. And he's like, oh, I had no idea. And I said, yeah, that's the problem. You can't be taking drink orders if you're going to be making fun of people. Yeah. I used to equate bartenders who didn't know how to make drinks and didn't know the lingo to going into a uh, getting your car fixed by a mechanic. And you say, yeah, you know what? I think my brake pads need uh, fixing. Oh, you, you put pads in your brakes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a real thing. The pads, uh, yeah. like shoulder pads. <laughs> no, no. Pads. Uh, never mind. Um, so, what are your go-to? My go-to. Well, one. Uh, as far as I, I like everything drier now. Uh, when I was younger, I, I had the whiskey sours and you know whiskey and Coke or whiskey and seven. I love Manhattan still. I love Manhattans with Amaros. The drier Maros. Black Manhattans. Black Manhattan. Oh, those are very good. Um, uh, I like uh, a, a really good dry. I love Tangeray is still my that's okay. my my gold standard of dry gin. So I like. Okay. I'll drink a, a, a dry martini with olive. This is a whiskey show, but what's your opinion on Tangeray Ten? I love Tang. Oh, you know what? Uh, one time I was in Scotland. With uh, Gregor Kotnak. Gregor worked for Diageo, or still does. Um, and I was up there visiting with him and his wife, Paula. Uh, they had a little house up there. And uh, he had a case of Tangerine Number no. 10. Mm-hmm. And he drank Tangerine Number no. 10 with tonic and lemon. And I never had so much gin while being in Scotland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just uh, I thought it was so weird when I came back. I thought, Jesus, I think I spent 90 Part ninety uh, percent of my time drinking gin in Scotland, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's made, anyways. Uh, so it's probably apropos. 
Uh, but I love Tanqueray number 10. I love the, the two Tanquerays. Always did. I helped launch Tanqueray number 10 when it first came out in the early aughts. Okay. So I was always a big fan. But as far as whiskey cocktails, Manhattan, obviously. I'm not a big fan of old fashions just because they, they tend, again, to be sweet. Oh, actually, a, a good old uh, Bob Roy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rob made with Johnny Walker Black, typically. And I like, again, drier, darker, smokier uh, okay. whiskeys uh, from Scotland. And then that, that's, that's really about it. Otherwise, I'm drinking something neat or on the rocks. Mm-hmm. I think my time with Benedictine kind of took the shine off of cocktails for me. They just felt okay. a little <laughs> too sweet. Ah, so yeah. you don't, so you don't, you're not a big fan of the Vicare? No, I'm not. Um, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously it was something I, I, I pushed, but again, I just, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's in the back of my mind. I think sugar is going to lead to a worse hangover the next mm-hmm. day. I think that's, I think that's it. I know that in my early twenties, I was all about the sugary drinks. And then once I hit 30 and discovered, um, scotch whiskey i was like why haven't i been just drinking this um, and now and now i go places and if they only have like a horrible blend or a horrible bourbon and that's all they have for choices then i just don't drink and everyone's like but you can get a cocktail i'm like with what they have no thank you yeah well you know what too I, i've really gotten into even though we pushed this back in the day we used to do uh the talisker nip and pint we paired up Talisker 10 to a different oh. beer. There's a bar here in Chicago called the Duke of Perth that has the Bellhaven Wee Heavy. Bellhaven Wee Heavy with Talisker Distillers Edition. That is a dangerous combination. Okay. I could drink that all night, and sometimes I have. And it's all right. Oh. It's, it sounds, it sounds more like a proposition than a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> it is. All right. We want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, Martin. Oh, thanks for asking. It's been wonderful. And I'm very excited to have, you know, a whole case worth of glasses from the Glencairn. I actually (laughs) collect a whole bunch. So I always feel every time I can collect one that's got, you know, somebody's logo on it. I'm like, oh, here's another one. I have a collection of branded Glencairns that at the bottom carry the text, do not take. Yes, I don't don't take those. (laughs) I actually have had people take my own personal... Glencairn Ooh. glasses from an event that I was hosting from my seat, from my table. That I that like, I've not really? done. <laughs> like, I don't believe it. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We enjoyed having you. And um, hopefully after this COVID-19 thing is over, we will get to see you pretty soon. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Philip. You guys be good. Thank you, Martin. Stay safe out there. We'll see you soon. You too. All right. Cheers. everyone that does it for our show today we hope you enjoyed it if you did please tune in next time and hit subscribe please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com that's whiskey with an e we'll include a link to the rolling stone article and the other resources for today's whiskey chronicles as well as a link to the glencairn website as always you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows thanks for joining us until next time Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.